You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with Superlative Podcast. I am joined by a special guest, a good friend of mine, and someone whose position is difficult to define within the watch industry. Chad Sagris, how are you? Awesome, Ariel. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on. Chad, I've seen you at pretty much every single watch event that I've ever been to. I think that you are some type of an international spy. You've You've never missed a single one. Um, you have, of course, you know, multiple of views around you. I know you're a clone. You seem to be everywhere at the same time. How, how did you get into going to every single watch event possible? Um, you know, it really comes to I need to be where the next trends are coming from, from the side as a buyer at Watch Gang to also being an avid vintage collector and enthusiast myself as well as a trader in vintage watches. And I just absolutely love it. So I go to every event. It seems that I do pop up everywhere, though. <laughs> well, I think the point I'm trying to make is that in a lot of industries, you don't necessarily have the conversation between what I call the product guy and the not product guy. In the world of watches, the people who endure the longest are the most successful are what I call product guys and, and gals. And Chad is someone who loves the product. He loves watches. He wouldn't be doing this if he didn't like watches. And I think the smartest and the best people in the watch industry are like that. They're compelled by their passion for it as opposed to sort of the, the business prospects. Even though you can make a lot of money in the industry, I think Chad, you'll agree, it's really about passion when it comes to the dedication to stick in it. I, I totally agree. I think that being passionate about the watch industry and watches in general makes it a lifetime goal to be in this industry. It's not just doing it for financial gains. It's about what can I do? What can I bring to the table? Um, I still get excited even with new watches and vintage watches when I find something that really speaks to me as a character. And that's, I'm not even bias to a certain brand or style either. It's it's what speaks to me. And I think that that's something that's very important to grow yourself in this industry and to be successful. Now, you have a diverse background, but you also come a little bit from a uh, sort of watch business family background. Uh, a little bit from watch family business. It was uh, my personal interest brought my parents into it and my brother into it, and they found it oh, with the watch company. Um, I came from it as I worked for a jewelry store when I was 18 years old. So you infected your whole family with a watch bug. That's impressive. Yeah. My dad's been to Basel World three times um, to support me and just to come for a nice trip around Switzerland. And then he ended up starting his own watch brand, which is Whippy Watch Company. Now, here in Los Angeles, where you live, uh, you're not from Los Angeles, but you've become one of us Los Angelinos. You wear so many hats. I mean, we have so many conversations about selling new watches, um, marketing watches, uh, selling old watches, making watches. In what seems like a relatively short amount of time, you've dabbled in so many areas. And I think you'll agree that dabbling in all these areas allows you to be a well-rounded business person in this landscape. If you just focus on one area, like just marketing or just sales, you're going to miss a lot of things that you need to be successful. 
Absolutely. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've had the opportunity to work in designing watches with companies, uh, manufacturing watches, working with brands very closely to develop them in North America. And then also I've been very fortunate that I've had the financial assets that I could buy and trade vintage watches, which is what I'm very passionate about, as well as bring brands like Laco to North America and do great projects like the Radox with you. Yeah, we did a special watch together uh, under the Laco brand, uh, creative directed by me, the Radox. Uh, I hope people listening check it out. It was a really fun watch. And, you know, you, I think, use the term conceptual art when describing yeah. it. And that was like the biggest compliment you could have given me and Matt, you know, the actual, uh, the, 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 the graphic designer, because that's exactly what we talked about. We wanted to create something that looked like it existed in a, in a universe. And to do that, there's a lot of details that are necessary. And to a degree, it becomes art at that point. Um, so you're open-minded as well. I think that a lot of people in your position that are involved with, you know, buying and selling watches to consumers tend to be very conservative in their tastes. Uh, they don't seem to be open-minded. They're not really in it for the art. They're more in it for the buck. You know, do you sometimes feel when speaking among colleagues a little bit lonely because they don't, they're not sort of as excited about novelty as you are? Um, not necessarily lonely. Um, I just work with different colleagues that I can talk about my creativity with and things that I want to do. And then I know people who are stuck in the old way of thinking in the watch industry. But there are a lot of people out there who are equally innovative and want to do great things. Um, some of my mentors, like Frank Dubarry, you know, he's someone who I think has pretty much always been a little bit of a disruptor in the industry. And he's someone who I personally I talk to on a weekly basis. And I find that there's people out there who really want to do cool things and make unique products that speak to different people and not the traditional watch industry. Do you want there to be a Sagres brand? Is this something that you have as an ambition or not yet? Um, no, it's not something I'd have as an ambition. I, I think that, you know, I've designed watches under my previous company, Ironbridge Watches, and it's more I want to be a part of a team working with brands and giving my input versus actually having my own brand. So you just haven't got there yet. Your t the time will come. I know it will. <laughs> Uh, maybe, you know, I've thought, I've thought about it a lot. Before. You see this progression, right? Like for me, I've done some design stuff like with the Radox and several years before that, I never would have thought I would have done it. And then when I did it, I realized, oh, this is interesting. And I've explored it more since then. So, you know, you're not alone in the sense that you have this excitement for the product and it like pushes you to do all these different entrepreneurial things within the industry. And then eventually you're like, you know what I really want to do? is make my own brand. And I think of someone like Jean-Claude Biver, who never had a Biver brand, but when he bought Hublot, that's essentially what it became. It became the Biver brand. Absolutely, that's exactly. And, and, and that's what it shows, you know, through all the achievements he did in his life, it shows through Hublot. So um, I would probably consider myself buying a brand prior to creating my own brand. Put it that way. Doing it the safe way. But that's the thing, you know, there's a certain degree of, fiscal conservatism that has to come into play in what you do. Like, I would be terrible at what you do because I'd be like, I, I love all this stuff. Buy it all, buy it all. And you're <laughs> like, whoa, 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 whoa. We have to like make money at some point. You know, I'm just too excited about things. So where do you develop that, that restraint? Because this industry, you can spend a lot of money like way, way too fast. You can spend money quicker than it ever comes in in this industry. Yeah. 
you know, it, it, in the uh, different sides of my business that I do, you have to make sure you do very good planning and know what your budget is and know what each product that you're purchasing has an end goal and who that client is going to. Um, the biggest thing about when you're purchasing anything and working with brands is not every client is you. Um, I have to make sure that I hit clients that aren't me because if every client was me, all the watches would end up looking the same and feeling the same. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> so you have to think about who's, who's your consumer and that's the, the main goal and how to diversify versus over a lot of different consumers versus just yourself. Right. Well, how do you find that out? You make it sound really easy. How do you find out who your consumer is? Um, feeling, um, knowing, looking at data, you know, we, we collect a lot of data. We see a lot of data, um, staying on point with trend and putting away your biases of things you may like versus what the mean likes or what different demographics like and making sure that you grab stuff that's going to speak to those people as well. Right. So that's interesting. You are humble enough to know that not everyone shares your taste. I, I think that it's, I'm in a smaller category of people who do share my taste versus who don't share my taste. Um, I, how many, you know, you and I disagree many times on what's a nice looking watch. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you like things that are much larger than I could ever pull off. And it's not because I'm a small guy. It's that I just tend to like watches under 40 millimeters, right? It's a funny thing, right? You, you'll get a room full of guys and you can, they can even be the same background, same size, whatever. And they're going to disagree on like what kind of watches they like. And then you get people from different backgrounds and like, oh my gosh, you're, they're really going to disagree on what they like. And there's no one's right, no one's wrong, but they're so, they have so much personal investment. And I think it has a lot to do with sort of the, the types of personalities that are in watch appreciation to begin with. And, you know, I think that marvelous people like watches. Sometimes they're marvelously terrible people. But people that like watches in their own regard are all really marvelous people. You know what I mean? You know, they're they're unique. They're a unique group of people. Um, <laughs> I think that there's a there's people who like watches. Um, they're the ones who are buying the mainstream watches, and then they start to dabble. And it's once you start dabbling into the abyss of micro brands, independent brands, is when you get a much more steadfast opinion about what you like and what you dislike. And uh, I think that's when you learn a little bit more about your watch collecting. Um, when you stay in the mainstream brands and in the most popular models, it's more of a general population. <laughs> you said something really interesting there that I think is worth considering for people, and not just in watches, but anything. If you stay mainstream, you never sort of go out of your comfort zone, right? Because non-mainstream things tend to be very conservative and accepted and known. Outside the mainstream is where there's weird stuff, which could either make you super happy or freak you out. So you never sort of get out of your comfort zone um, if you stay in the mainstream. And to get out of your comfort zone is where you learn about things you're really passionate about. And that requires I would agree. risk. I think that if there's one thing I could say all the watch lovers ever met have in common, it's a certain embrace of risk in their life in some way or another. I would agree. Um, whether it's their lifestyle of what they choose to do, whether if it's financially, they're more risk. They they definitely go for more risks. Um, you know, 
I I was always a vintage collector and I loved vintage watches. And every year when I go to Switzerland, I always buy an independent brand. For myself, it's a personal collection. And I always try to buy something that doesn't really fit in my profile. Um, you know, as you know, I have the uh, Terracella Mars Zero Zen. And this is a 44 millimeter watch. And it's not my personality. That's and an it's awesome an, watch, by the it way. Is, it's an awesome watch. watch. And but it's something outside of my norm. And it opened me up that I, I worked with Terracella Mars, very fortunate for three years with them. And in that, it literally was something I would never would have worn but I just, it spoke to me. And I now, why do you say that? That's interesting for people to hear. I mean, help, help people understand this sort of mentality. I never would have worn it. Like to someone that isn't a watch person, what does that mean exactly? Translate that sentiment. So to me, that means it's, it's <laughs> just something that doesn't go with any of my clothing and uh, with how I perceive myself in style. Um, but at the same time, it's just, something that's not my personality. And when I actually wore it for, and I still wear it all the time, it's just, I, I feel like I'm a different person. Like I'm going hiking, I'm a little more rugged, like a uh, little less refined. And yeah, it's, and, and the funny thing is, I can see that watching you from the side and be like, yeah, that's, that's totally you, that's fine. But watches help us, for the better or worse, manifest a certain side of ourselves. It's like wearing a costume for a minute. You know, you wear the the astronaut costume, the diver costume, the race car driver costume, you know, some some type of costume. And sometimes you're like, I like this costume. And other times you look in the mirror, you're like, no, that costume isn't me. That's not how I want to feel about myself. Yeah, absolutely. It's like if you put on like a Panerai, you feel like uh, you're Jason Statham in, uh, in Transporter, right? Uh, it's just like that you feel that way. Or if you put on a an Omega Seamaster, you feel like you're James Bond, right? It's They transform you, I'd agree. that They are a little bit of a costume, and it makes it a little more fun to wear different types of watches. What do you think the people that make watches could do to better help people get into watches these days? I think that there's a really big disconnect between the realities of the sort of awareness of watches and what watch brands expect people to know or know or care about and we know that in this industry especially requires education. Like people want to buy a nice car because they know what a nice car feels like. They know what a nice car looks like. They've driven cars. They can tell the difference between one that drives well and not as well. The consumer has a built-in education, at least for the most part, when it comes to buying a nice car. With a lot of other things like watches, they need to learn a lot of stuff over a long period of time um, to figure that all out. And the watch industry did a lot better when the world needed a wristwatch to tell the time. These days, what can these brands, you know, do to help create demand? Forget forget demand for their brand, but just like, hey world, luxury watches are a thing. Don't forget about that. I don't think anyone's gonna forget that luxury watches are a thing. I think that one thing that if we look in the past is designers were more brought forward as their names of who was actually the designers of watches. Um, and designers were given a little more freedom. With the industry and how it's sitting right now, it's very corporate. So you don't really know who the designer is of a lot of the watches that you're wearing. And this is a problem, right? I, th I think it's a problem because they are, and essentially they are art and they are jewelry, you know, it, without really legendary watch designers, we wouldn't have a lot of the malls that we love today. And 
the young designers, and I know lots of young Swiss designers, never get a chance to work on projects that they would want or put input that they would want. Why, into why do you think that is? I think it's because they have a formula now and it's corporate and... The brands have a formula? Brands, brands have a formula that we need to make this, 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 this. And they then they don't step outside of that comfort zone very often. There is brands that do step outside of their comfort zone and usually have great success with those models. Whether it's something initial or in the long term, you know, if you take an example like uh, Taikur that makes the Alec Monopoly watches, these does, this does not fit inside of the Taikur profile. But <laughs> I, it I did for a flash, a flash of time. I, I own both of them. I, I own the Carrera and I own a Formula One and I'm not a Tiger customer, but this is something that they said, okay, some, some young designer I'd imagine or someone young brought that to a meeting and they said, yeah, let's make I, it. I'm pretty sure it was Bevere's Kids. Um, it has to be. And, That's who it was, I believe. You know, it's amazing because this spoke to a whole new audience of future watch collectors and it relates to them on something that they really like. But amongst the enthusiasts and the existing ones, it was lambasted. Of course. But everything's going to be, you know, ups and downs, right? You can't make something that's perfect for everyone. But this, to me, is when you take risks like this, you're going to... Yes, you'll have some that are successful. And yes, you'll have ones that aren't successful. But if you look at all the watches over a whole course of 50 years, it's the ones with color. It's the ones that are different. It's the ones that aren't just the same watch over and over and over again that speak out to people. Distinctiveness is super important. And I think that brands that have their own unique design and they invest in them over time and they keep making them, refining them, at some point are often rewarded by those designs becoming a quote-unquote icon. Absolutely. And it's very easy to copy others, but then you never have anything iconic because as soon as the other thing loses popularity, so does your stuff. Absolutely. Um, you know, and the, 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 we, we don't even have to say what the iconic watches are. Everyone knows what the iconic watches are and they've seen them a hundred times. But it's, it's fun when you see an iconic watch that has a little bit of a playfulness to it as well or color or something to make it more unique. And those are the ones that, end up being worth a ton of money in the future and also are end up being much more rare. So answer this question to people that don't really know too much about watches, maybe see that other people are really into it, don't quite get it. Provided you have the money, you know, you should never buy a watch you can't afford. I advise against this. And I'm speaking directly to people who think they're going to make money on a watch. Okay, if you can't afford it, don't buy it. A thousand percent do not buy it if you cannot afford it. But there's people that don't really know what they stand to gain emotionally, style-wise, you know, fashionably. Give, give someone like the elevator pitch. Like, you don't yet own a nice watch. Maybe you've had watches that haven't been nice watches. What do you stand to gain by now being a watch person or at least having one nice watch? So that's a, a very funny thing because that comes right back to my normal day job and my normal hat of working for Watch Gang. And that's kind of what we specialize in is taking that entry-level client customer and... Uh, when we have that entry-level customer that we can teach them through a subscription model of what is maybe their style. Sometimes we're going to have to hit a home run. Sometimes we're not. 
what they really gain is a sense of style. Um, to me, when I wear a watch, it, it really ties my whole persona together and makes me feel comfortable. Um, it's a conversation piece. Um, it's very funny to say that because it's, it's, it's just, it's one of the few things that men have to, I think, break a barrier. Why do we, why do we need to break that barrier? Why? I don't know. You know, it's anytime it's like, it's anytime like you're, you're driving a car and you're trying to make new friends or you're trying to do something. It's like the first thing someone asks is what kind of car do you have? What kind of watch you have? Like it's, it's, I guess it's a relatable nostalgic feeling to break a barrier. Or maybe they're trying to figure out who you are. Are you a man of taste and prestige? You know, it's like, are you educated? Are you just trying to show off? Um, maybe. I, maybe. I, I, had, I had a friend of mine a couple of days ago, actually, we were, we were messaging one another. And, you know, sometimes I sort of make fun of his taste. He's got a lot of money, but he just doesn't like, sometimes he just, he's, his popularity is more important to him. And he said, a $3 million car is everyone's taste. And I'm like, well, the presumption is that the $3 million is going towards a lot of car. Like, it's well-engineered, it's well-made, it's cool-looking, it's exclusive. Like, I don't think it's the dollars themselves are exciting. I think it's what the dollars get you, and they're using the, the price as a shortcut. So if you really break it down, no, $3 million is not everyone's taste. It's what $3 million may represent that they hope is something which is cool and exciting. So I think that, you know, there's this, there's this really important element there of – wanting to get over just showing off money because I think that in culture we find that to be impolite. I I believe that it's very impolite to show off that you have money. Um there is certain circles where that is accepted. Um but I agree and I don't think the three million dollar car or a three million dollar watch is a, is everyone's taste. Um you know some people don't you know that's why I, I work with a brand name out of order. Um, as you know, and that's not everyone's taste. Um, it's a distressed, beat up watch. It's like buying an old Ford pickup truck, you know? So it's a, I think it's a, yeah, you'd have to break it down to what the social circle and what someone's trying to accomplish by buying a watch. And I buy watches because I like them the way they look. I, I buy watches because not because anyone else is going to think it's cool. But is this a strong sell? I mean, here's the thing. I agree with you, but I, I want you to like strengthen the pitch here because you're telling a guy or a gal spend hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands more on this thing that goes on your wrist that you don't really need. Like, is it enough to be like, you like the way you feel? Like, that's the men's warehouse, you know? Uh, it's not about the, you know, like it goes with, it does go with your personality. Um, and it's something where I, I choose watches to be a momentum for events that happen to me in life where I'll purchase a watch for a special event. Um, I choose watches to, and I'm talking about watches in my personal collection to, I bought a watch for my 35th birthday last week and I bought the new Breitling top timer. Congratulations. It's not a watch normally I would buy, but it's something that... I'm starting to believe there is no watch you would normally buy. There, no, there is. Um, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, Rolex 5513s. Okay. I have probably like 10 of them. That's a lot and of it's, That's a lot of 5513s. I think it's probably the coolest watch for collecting personally. Why, why is that? 
because explain what this watch is for people that aren't familiar it's, with so it's a rolex <laughs> three hand no date submariner yeah um they made it from the early 60s into the early 90s and i like it because there's so many variations in that time period of the exact same model like tiny variations very tiny variations um to me that's something and to me that's something that i enjoy um, I enjoy patina. I enjoy when a watch looks like it's been worn. I don't like to have my watches looking, if they're vintage, like they're brand new and clean. I want it to look like it's been actually on someone's wrist for 30 to 40 years and that that person didn't think of it as a luxury item, but actually thought of it as a tool. Okay, so... Let me ask you a question, because this sort of goes to this notion of what you said. You don't like things that look brand new. You want them to be like nice, but not brand new. You like the patina. Okay, so another person we're going to have in superlative or, you know, will have had, depending on people listen to this, is a founder of a company here in L.A. called Made Warren, uh, Blaine Halverson. And, and Made Warren is, as far as I know, the world's best like pre-ager of clothing and things like that, like the finest pre-aged, you know, T-shirt. And he has a license of all the bands. So he'll make you that um, that Rolling Stones shirt that looks like it's actually the original one, even though it's totally new. Does that type of thing appeal to you? Is that, is that like your type of fashion? Yeah. I, 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 to me, I like a worn-in T-shirt and a pair of real good blue jeans. But know? is the idea of buying, you know, because again, it's similar, like out of order. Like it isn't actually from the 1970s, but it made to look like it has survived and, and it's the prettiest, most, you know, curated looking wear and tear. Like, does that appeal to you? That It's like, it's fake, but it's meant to look cool. That appeals to me um, in the sense where I don't really like to wear vintage clothing, <laughs> but I'd like, I like the look and the style. So right. for me, that that's something that does appeal to me. Um, we got to get you more, more made worn. Blaine will be very persuasive. Oh, I, I would love it. You know, I, I'm always open for new things and trying different brands out. So I'll have to, I'll have to go and check them out. Let's talk about the hunt. And this is a conversation I want to have with multiple people because I think it's very integral into appreciating watches. And the hunt is really this notion of you've, you've set your sights on a watch that you like or want, maybe a brand and you can't get it immediately because you can't afford it or it's not available. You just can't find one, whatever. And sometimes you're hunting multiple watches, but there's this sort of like, it could take years. But it's the idea that you're like, I want this trophy. I'm going to get it someday. Someday I'll bag one, you know, like you're going to, and then you mount it in your wall, like a, like a trophy, you know, head of an animal or something like that. Because the second you get it, you no longer care. You want to look at it and remember the triumph of, of you know, winning the hunt or something like that. That's a real part of watch collecting. It's also kind of like funny when you talk about it. It's 100% about all collecting, I think. Um, you know, a, a great analogy for this is um, one of my best friends who played on the Carolina Hurricane for the NHL, he started collecting guitars 15 years ago. And he basically was searching all over when he was traveling, playing hockey for different guitars and different vintage guitars and different new guitars. And he's like, every time you find the one that you've been looking for, you don't even want to use it. You just bring it home. You put it up on your wall and you're like, I found it, but now I can find something else. Yeah. Um, that's exactly. The love affair is over. The love affair is over. And, um, 
you know, but sometimes that love affair comes back. Um, you know, the reason I even came down this path in my life to work in the watch industry was because when I was 18 and I was working at a jewelry store, I really wanted a Breitling. And to me, when I was 18, I thought that that's the highest end watch, the best watch. Did, and I did you sell Breitlings? Like, is that what your store sold? We didn't sell Breitlings. Oh, you didn't? Okay. And it was just to me, back then, the marketing was great for Breitling. And it was like, I really want one. So it put me down a whole path in my life of trying to accomplish it. And once I accomplished it, it's like, well, what's next? What's next? And now it's comes to a point where it's not what's next, but it came back and it's like, this new Breitling came out and I'm like, I need to have that because, and I bought it for my 35th birthday because the 18 year old Chad would have died if he could have just walked in and bought something like that. Which so is funny because you were telling me like totally not my style, but you've been lusting after it forever. I've been lusting after it forever and I've owned hundreds of Breitlings in my life, but this is one. It's an awful that I, lot of Breitlings. Yes, it is. Um, this is one Breitling that's just going to be put up in, in my, uh, safe and left alone. And I might wear it a few times and then I'll be just keeping it for probably a gift to my kids or to give to someone special in my life. Because I think it means a lot to me that it's, I was 35 years old and I, and I've owned hundreds of Breitlings now, but I can literally just walk into a Breitling boutique and say, I want that. And when I was 18, it was a big goal of mine to have that. So it's a certain sense of power accomplishment. I believe so. You know, you know, it's a power accomplishment and, and just, uh, you know, it's fun, right? <laughs> I mean, look, going back to what you were saying earlier about watches in relation to style and things like that, I think a good way I would describe it is it's sort of the icing on the cake. It's the final polish. You know, it's the, it's the star at the top of the tree, so to say. Um, it's fun to play with it because there's, there's one of them. You can only wear one watch. And I think it's actually funny because I, I think women are sometimes envious of it because like, oh, you just have one watch to wear about. You can wear one at a time. With jewelry, there's like no limit. You know, it's like even with earrings. Like, oh, now I have to wear more than one earring in my ear. I have to stick more of them in. Like, there's, there's no limit. But with men, you know, we've tried, for example, like I think you and I have even tried to like double wrist it with like smartwatches. It doesn't really work. Like, it's one watch. So there's a simplicity and you can change it every single day. And you know, in a sense, it's like shoes, but I don't know, shoes you can't really keep as nice because they're shoes, right? You wear them, they immediately start to wear. Watches, if you're lucky, you can be more gentle with them. But it really is that sort of icing on the cake type of thing. And because it's a luxury, because it strictly isn't necessary to you know, go out of the house, you don't need the watch, um, you can obsess a little bit more over it because you don't, you don't have as many like practical considerations. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's what most consumers nowadays are doing, is uh, obsessing over it and excess, obsessing over which one speaks to them. It's a, I'd agree. That's a, it's a very fair say, point to say is having this male piece of jewelry or women, like female piece of jewelry, and that that is able to speak about your personality. You only can wear one. I've tried wearing two watches many times. Doesn't work for me. I'll do it at Basel World or a big watch event, and I won't go out in public. I, I wish I could. <laughs> but Let's talk about the legacy. You mentioned something about passing on watches to your kids or a loved one or something like that. 
I don't know that they would really be able to appreciate it. You know, you and, and a lot of other people, especially nowadays that can learn about watches and buy them so quickly, have amassed stellar collections. I mean, there's got to be several thousand like truly stellar watch collections, if not more around the world. What do people do with them when they die? Because these are all collections that have been comprised during our lifetime. And the point I'm trying to make is it's not like a bunch of people with amazing watch collections died and then we know what they did with them. They put it given to a museum or they sold them at auction. Like, this happens once in a while, but not enough where there's any sort of like standard norm of what to do. But so the question, and I'm not saying we'll figure it out now, but like what do people do with their watch collection after they died? And there's a good chance that their kids or their loved ones like wouldn't have any idea what to do with it. Might know it's valuable, but chances are to sell it. Like, is that is that what you want for it? You know what I mean? So what's the legacy plan? Uh, for me, I think that uh, because of my obsession with watches, that I will be able to find someone who would appreciate some of my watches. And then I'd be able to give that person prior to me passing away or anything like that, um, the watches that I'd want to give away. Uh, I've seen plenty of collections um, over the last 10 years that come out of nowhere. And it's things that you would be like, wow, that actually exists. I've never even seen that before. Um, and they end up just floundering away through auction houses and buyers and traders. But you're 100% right, because you need to have those watches going to people who actually want them and will take care of them and pass them on, or else they do just get lost throughout time. Um, for me, I think I would want to give it to people who, and I do actually already, um, I gave my mom a watch, I've given my brother a watch, I've given my dad a watch, I've given friends of mine watches. Um, I've made a limited edition watch, and one of my friends um, is uh, from out of order. We did this ghost um, Swiss automatic, and I kept one side for myself. What was exactly was haunted about it? Uh, it wasn't haunted. <laughs> there was a, um, a basically in the on the case back we did a loom of a ghost. Oh, so the night. But I gave it to a friend of mine. It's like, wow, that's a really nice watch. And I said, really, it's the only one I had. It was the last one, and I took it off my wrist and I said, here you go, man. And that's what I kind of like to do mostly myself. So you want to be Putin? You want to just give your watch, watch off your wrist to uh, the, the lowly folk and look like a, like a really cool guy? Uh, yeah, yeah. That, but now people are going to come up to me and ask me for my watches when I'm wearing so, so you're gonna be That's your retirement plan. You're going to be like this guy and you like sit innocently on a bench somewhere. And if like someone comes and has a good conversation, you see, you're like, you win. And you just like pull out a watch from your coat and walk away. <laughs> I could see myself doing something very similar to that. <laughs> I do, I do keep uh, watches sometimes with me from lo my brands I work with uh, from lower end brands. And if someone's like has a, if I have a really good conversation, I've I've been known to do that once or twice. Is giving them my watch, and then I, that that must feel really good. Is it ever awkward? Is ever someone like I don't want your freaking watch, weirdo? Uh, no, you know, uh, you know, I I've done it quite a few times at LAX at the airport bars. I've done it in different places. Where you bars? Just, but just talking to the bartender and just, hey, man, and just gave, gave him my watch because, you know, he was talking to me for 45 minutes or I've given it to friends or That's people like a tip. Met. That's how you tip people. You have so many watches, you tip them with the watch, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it, it's like a, a more of a sentimental tip. So they remember me. <laughs> I mean, it's like, is your name on the back of it? That'd be, you know what? 
That's it's like the world's most expensive business card. I've thought like, about it before. You engra- really? Like you engrave yes. your details on the back of the watch. You put your brand on the front of the watch, details on the back of the watch, most expensive business card in the world. That is, yeah, screw like a solid piece of gold. No, or, or like a plastic. Give out vintage, vintage Rolexes uh, as, your, as your business card. As your calling card. Because <laughs> you're also ruining them in the process. <laughs> this is great. I love this idea. This is ultimate luxury. Uh, last night, I recorded a show with David Bredden from the Blood to Watch team. Awesome. And we talked the entire show. It was over. It was almost an hour and a half talking about one thing, and that is the word luxury. And so, so what does luxury mean to you? Oh, I mean, it was a long discussion. Long discussion. I was going to ask you what luxury means to you, and if you want to hear the answer, you'll have to hear the full show. If what I think, uh, I, I can't, I can't yeah. wait to hear. Uh, luxury to me um, means uh, comfortability to be able to afford things that you personally want in life. Okay, interesting. You said comfort. That was a term we talked about a lot. I don't think that luxury um, has to do with price point. Um, I have luxurious things that I enjoy that are just simply certain foods I enjoy um, that are more expensive and that you actually financially have to be comfortable for. But at the same time, I enjoy things that are not very luxurious at all. And it's just, I enjoy them. Like I went on the weekend for a trip to Morrill Bay and it was just going hiking. And to me, that's a luxury as well. Well, it's the ability to do things that, you know, are excessive. Like there isn't necessarily a return. Uh, and again, there was a long discussion I had about it, but yeah, you're talking about it's the comfort, which is the valuable part that you can afford it makes it exclusive, which is another facet of luxury but the ultimate thing that you're trying to reach is that state of comfort. I believe so. I believe that's exactly what it is. Um, and if you look at the good luxury brands and the luxury houses, if you take LVMH, um, they pretty much have gone after every sort of comfort and every sort of luxury good as they can have from owning beautiful hotels to having exquisite wines and even brands like Laura Piana that make some of the most luxurious, as I could say it like that, cashmere sweaters. They're super. I mean, but like we're talking, I mean. That's very high luxury we're talking. <laughs> I mean, I think that's really what, what goes to the sort of impolite sense of luxury is that there are certain expensive things that they just need to cost that amount. You know, you want like a yacht. It's so much work that goes into a yacht. Like, you crazy? How can it not be millions of dollars? It's crazy. It's like a little, it's a moving building. But sometimes people look at something as small as a watch or as simple as a garment. And they say, why does it need to cost that amount? And today, because, you know, I'm not a textile expert, a company could just be pulling one over on me. And say, yeah, our sweater's a thousand bucks, and they're just snickering in the corner, like, oh my God, that cost us like 50 bucks to make. So I think a lot of consumers are worried about being deceived and don't want to feel foolish. And, and therefore, you know, price is, is guilty of a lot of that. Is that a legitimate concern? I think it is a legitimate concern because of the mass amount of products are, that are out there currently. Um, and because the, there's such an explosion of manufacturing overseas that we think regardless of where something's manufactured, that the price is all the same. 
Um, I spend a lot of time in a year in Italy. I probably travel to Italy around five to six times in a year. I've been in many factories, uh, not just watch and jewelry factories, but also apparel factories, um, sunglass factories, and various other factories in Italy. And the amount of time, the proud, how proud the people are manufacturing these products um, and the quality that they put into these products that are luxury products justify the price on a lot of them. I can't say that on every product, but on a lot of products that I've seen manufactured, it really changes your perspective on what the value is. Well, I think that's where the story part comes in for sure. And, you know, you need to, that's the thing about luxury. And we talked about this yesterday as well is a lot of luxury is transparent to you unless you understand how to appreciate it. You could have the, the, the best food in the world in front of you and eat it. But unless you sort of understand the best food, maybe you can taste it. But, you know, a, a, a good watch, you wouldn't know. Good clothing, you might not know. Um, so, so much of it goes into sort of the understanding about how to appreciate it. And only then does it become luxury. So it's interesting that it's really all about in our mind. The same item can be completely luxurious to someone and to someone else that doesn't know those stories, it means nothing to them. Exactly. And, and it's how does the marketing team teach those stories to people? And how does your sales staff tell those stories is what makes those luxurious products sell. What stories sell you? What, do you, what stories are you particularly compelled to other than ones that um, are in Italy? <laughs> uh, I like France and Switzerland as well. And, and oh, you're I, very, very open-minded of you. Yeah. And, and, and I do go to Germany sometimes. Um, sometimes. Me, well, <laughs> The To me, you know, I, I used to work for a clothing company in Canada when I was uh, in my early teens, or late teens, sorry, called Harry Rosens. And I also worked at Grafton and Fraser. And learning how to dress properly, learning how to see the craftsmanship of tailored clothing basically made me change my opinion on what is good quality and what's bad quality. And the story to me is the craftsmanship is what sells me mostly on things. You know, I'm also a big fan of Morgan Motor cars, not because they're the fastest, not because they're the coolest, but because the amount of craftsmanship to go into making one of those cars is outstanding. And it's a, it's a skill that is being basically passed down. It's not something that it's from the past. All those cars, chassis are made of wood still, right? Yeah. I think it's interesting because, you know, you're talking about this appreciation of human effort. And I think one of the ways that I like to value luxury is by human hours and not just, you know, just rot human hours, but also expertise hours. That someone who knows how to do something very well, way better than I could ever think, spent a thousand hours on this project for me, and maybe there's a whole team of like 10 or 15 or 20 of those people. Oh my God, the result of their labor has got to be worth so much, right? 100%. It's the same thing with food. It's the same thing with anything where there's human hours and love and dedication put into something makes a result that's completely different than anything else, I believe. And with a watch, it's one of the few things that you can wear that can be sort of closer to handmade, right? Because 
I don't know. Unless you're a very special person, you're not going to be wearing handmade shoes. You're probably not going to be wearing handmade clothing. You know, you have electronics on you that, you know, those aren't handmade. But your watch can be that one, like, connection to the artisanal arts, right? And that's, it, even though it's hard for us to explain why that's, that's satisfying, it just ends up feeling very satisfying. Absolutely. You know, and you're right. It's one of the few things on a daily basis that we are able to use and wear that is a handmade product. And that makes it much more special, I think. And, and jewelry is the same way. And, you know, jewelry is the same that people buy it to have a sentimental feeling or to basically dress up, like, as you said before, into a different persona. What is the future going to be like? We're in the pandemic right now. And actually, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about a topic we didn't even get to yet. So we're probably going to talk about it next time. And we're going to talk about how we're going to be wa- buy watches tomorrow. We might continue this next time. But, you know, we, we ended, even before the pandemic, the retailer era ended. It was still sort of, you know, available. It was still there. It was very intoxicating to brands because they love the idea of selling large volumes of watches in wholesale. But... The internet, in a lot of ways, just sort of invalidated the need to have a lot of retailers. And the pandemic has shaken it up even more. If anything, just accelerated stuff that was already happening. But there's a new paradigm that has to be established in how you get a marketing you know, message across online and not just rely on, you know, I hope the social media community rallies behind my product. Like, you can't run a business relying on those types of accidental things to happen. So... Just quickly, how do you predict people are going to be buying their watches tomorrow for the most part? I predict that most watches, and there still is going to be the good, the legendary retailers are always going to be there. They cater to a different customer base. They have clients for decades and decades, and they do a very, very good job. But explain um, why. I don't disagree, but explain why. Why are they so, not going anywhere? Because they have they, their customer base is very loyal to them. They take care of customers in such a unique way and they go, a good retailer will go out of their way to make sure, even if they're not making money, to satisfy that customer. Um, I've worked with many retailers over the last 10 years and major retailers and a customer is requesting a vintage watch or a unique piece that they do not have. And they know that they can't make money off it, but they still pass on that customer to someone like me to take care of them, to make sure that their customer gets exactly what they were looking for. And those that's a really good retailer. And you know to have a really good relationship with a retailer, it, it really goes a long way when you're trying to find those hot watches or those watches that are very hard to find because a retailer will help you eventually. Your presumption is that the brands themselves will never be able to do this. I believe the brands will be able to do it, but it'll be a long transition and it will have to come through strategic relationships with key retailers in certain areas that basically the brands will still have their own footprint here, but they'll need the retailer to introduce them, teach them and run those operations for them at a local level. Um, It's very difficult to run a boutique (laughs) In Los Angeles, where we are, if you are a guy sitting in a corporate office in Switzerland, how do you understand the demographic? You're almost contradicting yourself because you first said they'll be able to, and then you said the only way they'll be able to is by having an independent third party in that city. 
an independent third party that basically <laughs> acts as a representative of only them. So in other words, no, they would never be able to do it themselves. Unless they give the rights and franchises to buy basically boutiques, which a lot of brands have started to do, that's how they'll be able to do it. I mean, I'm just, I'm sort of saying that, yes, theoretically they could, but in execution, a lot of the brands have demonstrated they're trying to run the entire world from the home office in Europe. And that's a recipe for disaster because they're so afraid of giving local control. And if it's a third party authorized dealer, they inherently don't run that business. So there is that local control. And I think the unspoken thing you're saying is knowing the local audience, knowing the people, knowing what's important to them, the important days, knowing their families, those relationships, that's what helps sell not all watches, but an awful lot of watches. And I don't think the industry could stand without that. It sells an awful lot of watches. And, you know, and I know that certain retailers I work with go above and beyond for their customers. Um, It's it's funny because during this whole pandemic, you know, a lot of brands that are major brands who were afraid of e-commerce and were afraid of going online sales have really moved towards online sales. Um, I well, don't know how... They've had no choice. They've had no choice. Um, I don't know. It's a very fine line that needs a balancing act. Um, I've dealt with this as I work for an e-commerce company. I, I deal with this on a daily basis, working with brands and explaining that this is the future, but there's a way you can do it properly and secure your brands and making sure that you're creating relationships of customers online in the same way that you do an offline relationship. Okay, so let's let's sort of break this apart right now because I think you're talking about something really important that needs to be discussed more. There, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> I, I know we could. I mean, that's what we do. Um, I just I'm trying. I think it's so interesting because I don't think the outside world really gets what's going on. I don't even think people in the industry can explain why one watch was popular versus another. Okay, so we're talking about the fact that there's this demographic of people out there that are almost product agnostic. What I mean is, there's an anniversary coming up, and they know that there's themselves or someone special likes a watch. They call that person they have the watch retail relationship with, their watch salesperson. And they schmooze a little bit and they tell them, you know, what's been going on in their life and what they want to spend. And at least traditionally, that watch retailer would help just sort of put them in the right direction. Chances are they'd be happy. They're more buying the experience of buying themselves a reward versus there's a specific watch I want because I understand why it's cool or I think it's going to be an investment. That's a whole other conversation. You see what I'm saying? Like, it's not that they're not buying a watch and it's not that they, they don't care what it looks like, but they're relying on someone else to do it. For them, the luxury is in the process of saying, I know this individual that helps me make good watch choices and I'll get it and I'll remember about how it was so great to you know get to my 20th anniversary, da, 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 da. It's it's a it's a luxury rewarding experience as opposed to like the nerdery if I got to have that watch because those hands and that movement and da 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 da. Absolutely, I'd agree with that. And it's it's a different customer that's coming in and buying at the level like that because it's the customer who's buying because of the movement, the hands, of this. They know every single thing more than even some of the manufacturers about those watches. It's incredible, actually. Sometimes the information I get from customers like that. 
Um, but it's, yes, it's a rewarding experience buying in the store and having that catered experience. How do you do that online though? How do you take that relationship where I have my watch guy or gal, I know to call them when I want to reward myself or something like that. How do you do that online when it becomes about, you know, price, you you don't want, you, you can't have an emotional relationship with a chat bot. Um, how's that supposed to be done? You would have to build a way that you would basically categorize people into not a chat bot, but you actually put a concierge service for that customer. And that is very expensive. Um, I'm a human being stuck in this website. Please help me. You'd have to have that. You'd have to, especially when you're talking about luxury products and, you know, it's, Talking to humans and you'd, you'd have to basically build a sales team for the future um, instead of looking at the sales teams that we've had in the past. And it would be literally an e-commerce catered concierge experience, which is, you know, I've purchased luxury goods um, online myself and it takes a little bit of dissatisfaction out than actually going into the store. Um, I think that if brands are going to move towards being only online or more online, which a lot of brands have done, they've done it in a really interesting way by releasing limited editions um, and exclusive editions. But at the end of the day, that's going to a collector base, not to a mass market. And to get that mass market, you're going to have to have a concierge type of service. So... Do you want to be like the person training these people? Because I think that like this is a complicated thing. Because just saying that, I, where 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 would a corporate company even begin to understand how to like create a a rule book for how to do that? I can't tell all my secrets, Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> there's see, this is why I was saying there's this incredible sense of mystique in the watch industry. There's so much of this is. You know, it's like so many trade secrets and things like that. Some of them are not even trade secrets, but it's like there's a secret going on there. Like brands, they don't like to talk about who their suppliers are, even things that they should be proud to talk about. Um, it's sort of funny how they're just watches, but things are protected like they're nuclear secrets. Uh, it, one of my favorite things um, is when I'm talking with someone about, and they're telling me about their manufacturing or their dial supplier or case supplier or some type of component. And they're saying how amazing it is and this and that. And I'm personal friends with the supplier. And I've that to me, this is one of my favorite things. Because I don't ever say anything, but I'm like, oh yeah, that's very beautiful. But I <laughs> you're like, I know who makes that for you. I know exactly who makes that for you, and I know exactly the quality it is. So, you know, I've I've traveled from everywhere in Switzerland factories to Italy and factories to Germany and factories to I've been to Hong Kong and Shenzhen many times as well. So I've seen all aspects of factories in the industry. Final thing, what are you searching for? And I go, this is a little philosophical and possibly existential, but you're talking about dabbling in so many areas of the watch industry, making watches, buying watches, selling watches, visiting places where watches are made. What is it that you're searching for? What do you, what drives you to keep doing all this? I love the community. Um, that's around the watch community and around the business atmosphere of this industry. Um, what drives me is personal interest um, and basically wanting to leave a legacy 
behind of things that I've been involved with, with projects, you know, I'm very proud to be with you in the project with the Radox. I think this is something that was an outstanding product and so satisfying. Amazing. It's so satisfying. Yeah. And it's, it's something that, you know, I, every time I wear mine, it's like, oh man, this was so cool. I, it gets cooler every time I wear it. I feel I'm really like, glad you like it. Yeah. Like it's, and, and I, and I'm not a guy who comes from any video game knowledge and I'm just like, wow, this is really <laughs> cool. Like I've actually read a lot into the video games after the fact. Um, you know, to me, I like to, I have a lot of friends in this industry. I enjoy to travel. Um, my lifestyle is that I like to travel. I like to spend time with my friends. Um, and this industry really gave me an opportunity to do things that I love. La Dolce Vita. Yeah. You know, it's not bad when you have to go to Milan to go meet someone. Yeah, I, I know. And I mean, it's just every time I hear you say that, I just lament the fact that these days our travel is severely restricted. And I don't know. It's like, do we do I mourn us never being able to travel with the volume that we used to? Or do I try to have like, you know, slightly apprehensive zeal that there's going to be, you know, a return to that. Like, I don't know how to like think about the future of travel because it's become such a big part of our life. And these days, like, I don't know what to expect. I, it's uh, for me, you know, um, your travel schedule is pretty much as gruesome as I am. And uh, it's so different. Um, I haven't really gotten on an airplane since March. Um, normally I fly 250 hours, 300 hours a year. Um, it's, I kind of mourned at first, but then I started to think about things that I enjoyed locally. And then I basically was missing because I wasn't there. Um, you know, like, uh, going on hikes locally and, you know, spending time with more of my friends locally. And it's, we will get back to a point, I think, when we can travel freely. I think it's going to be very restrictive for the next 18 months, but it's, it's a good time to reflect on yourself, I think, and what you like. I mean, sure. I just think, you know, again, talking about enjoying where you live locally, well, a lot of the things that are the entertainment, the famous entertainment of Los Angeles are also closed down right now as well. It's so like it's very true. <laughs> at least we at least and, and at least we have the uh the beautiful hills and mountains and there could be worse know, places to be stuck. That's really could the be point. Worse places to be such, stuck. Such worse places. Uh, Chad, where should people go if they want to learn more about the Chad Sagres universe and what what it is that you, you know, do they just go to Watch Gang? Yeah, check out watchgang.com. Um, you know, we're, we're a great service. You know, we uh, do a lot of different things on our website and uh, it's a great community to be involved with. Thank you so much for being on this episode of Superlative. We'll probably have you back and... We'll give you a lot more things to think about. Everyone, thank you so much for listening to Superlative. Subscribe and check out our shows and comment, and I will talk to you the next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.
Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe?